0: Well, we're back in class, uh, come in, we're back in class January the 20th, this will be lesson 54 from the section that we're going to begin from Matthew chapter 6, we hope to finish up Matthew chapter 6, I don't know if we'll do that today or not, got a lot of material here, but if we don't, then certainly we will, the next lesson, then we'll move on to chapter 7, today Lord, from Matthew 6:25 25 through 34 are these passages that sort of sort of fit together here and we're going to be looking at the issue of faith and worry or maybe I should have said worry and faith because worry is going to going to take the stage here as we look about what God's word has to say in these particular passages. You could title this section a number of things as I was uh, studying through it and you know, looking through my booklet on the Sermon on the Mount, the, the book by Charles Quarles, he talks. He titles it "The Results of Proper Priorities." That's the way he would title this whole passage of Scripture. If you look in your uh, MacArthur Study Bible, it's these are uh, scriptures that just continue under that same subtitle of wealth, which begins in verse 19 of chapter six. MacArthur New Testament commentary would call it overcoming worry. But without a doubt, what you have here in these verses, obviously, is this uh, contrast, if you will, between faith and worry, or anxiety and worry. Our Heavenly Father is faithful. I want to say that right up front. So we can be faithful, can we not? We can be faithful and trust Him. He has promised that He will supply. And we can begin this morning, because it's going to talk about worry against the needs of life, the necessities of life, those things that we all have to deal with, that we're responsible to deal with. God owns it all. He controls it all. We've heard that and we know that. He provides out of His abundance. He provides for His children. I want to say that. You may say, well, that would be a good way to end the lesson. No, that's a good way to start the lesson. And we want to look at it from that perspective all the way through. What He has promised to do in your heart and life spiritually, what He has promised to provide by means of your uh, necessities in life and so forth, He will Certainly, do that, his word declares that to us, so we can begin this morning with that that surety he 's going to do that in our life and once again, I want you to picture Christ and teaching and the, the setting and so forth we 're still at the at the Sermon on the mount we 're still there he 's going on about this, and he brings this issue up about worry and understand that when he brings it up he 's not talking about. Uh, uh, trying to discourage his disciples and those others listening from worrying in the future, the language doesn't indicate that. The original language indicates that they're worrying right now and that they're noted worriers. That's the way he's addressing this. You might say he's he's calling them out on this. Okay, this is not just a little helpful hint for you know life's difficulties that will most assuredly come. No, he's talking about people who are struggling right now before him. So that's the the context of what's happening. So in verse 25 of chapter 6, it says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried. Now, he's talking about all those things that went before, all the things that we've already studied up to this point. And you can go back and look at him, but he's saying, if you truly believe that, if you understand that, if those things are a reality in your life because of those things, for this reason, is what it says in the New American Standard, then, then what follows? I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to do what you to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So Christ is speaking to gain the attention and to once again arrest the hearts of the people who are listening to Him. Without a doubt, those who are there listening have to say, well, that's me. Okay, that's, that's me. I, I'm a worrier. You know, I'm, I'm filled with anxiety. And they had issues in their life, just like we do. They had every single want or necessity for life that you and I have today with one huge difference I might add, and what might that be? Ours are pretty easy to come by, aren't they? We don't have to go down to the river every day, do we? We don't have to build a fire. <laughs> you know we don't have to do that, build a fire however they did it. We't have to do those things. We don't have to process our own food, so to speak, unless we just it's a, it's a hobby nowadays for people who do that. Life was more difficult, but there were still only 24 hours in the day. There were things to be done. They were very good at what they did. They had means it could be done, but it still required God's blessing. It still required God's provision, did it not? In order for it to all happen. So in that regard, nothing's changed really. Nothing's changed. Our lives today are encumbered with things. We talked about this in a previous lesson. Our lives are encumbered with materialism. Our lives are built around trying to avoid the pulls of this world from a materialistic point of view. We pray about those kinds of things. That wasn't the norm back in the day that he's talking about. So again, when he says for this reason, it points to those previous verses. You could look at those. You just can't serve God and money, right? That's what we talked about last lesson. And that's where he ends it. And there are other verses. All that he talked about beforehand, he wants to bring to their attention. Failure to view riches and possessions from a proper perspective does what? What does it do? If we don't view riches, if we don't view wealth, if we don't view things from the proper perspective what do you get out of that what's our lesson about worry and anxiety those follow if the heart and the mind are not right about those things seeking happiness through riches and possessions simply promotes anxiety because it does not work it does not work and you know being a a law enforcement officer for so many years, and, and particularly uh, being out on the road and being in people's homes and handling calls and looking at all the problems and difficulties that emerge from people who are truly off track in this regard. They don't even realize they're off track because they'll talk to you about what their actual pursuits are, and you're just standing there shaking your head like, man, you don't, you don't get it. You don't get it. That's what's wrong here. And you try to try to deal with it as best you can. That's our society, is it not? You can seek happiness and riches through these things. You'll just increase your anxiety. It's one of the sad symptoms, if you will, of a society that literally is enslaved, as the Bible would say, to mammon. We looked at that last lesson. To material things. Thinking that they can bring joy, that they can bring peace and comfort. They can bring some level of of genuine fulfillment in a person's life. And they simply cannot. It does not work. I remember years ago, I was talking about police work, I'll give you this little quickie here. It's Christmas time and we answered it wasn't me, but my beat partner answered a call in East Marietta the boy had taken off, he'd left home, he'd left, he was upset. And this he's in a I don't believe it was Atlanta Country Club. But he was from a well to do community over there and uh couldn't find him, and they finally he had called and some of his friends had called and told his parents why he had left and wasn't coming home because he found out that instead of getting a Datsun 280Z for Christmas, he was only getting a Datsun B210. And That was literally in the report. I read it with my own eyes. So his parents, being very wise, will you inform him that if he'll come home, we'll get him a Datsun uh, 280Z. I think back then it's probably a 240Z. I don't know if you remember how that went. So, those kind of things just, just kind of send chills up your spine when you, when you actually see them and understand um, those things simply do not satisfy. It will not work. So Christ says here, He says, look, don't be worried. Literally, don't be anxious. And depending on which translation you look at, if it's New American Standard, you're going to see that word worried about six times or some variation of five times. One translation, you'll see it six times and it literally means in its original language it means this overwhelming apprehension or, or worry or anxiety as it's, as it's translated into English. But it's something on a high scale. It's, it, it depicts something that literally has the control of you. It's dominating your thought processes. It's dominating. It's, it's pulling on your energies. And there is a physiological aspect and uh, A physiological fallout, if you will. A really physical response from worry. We know that. We'll touch on that here in just a little bit. So that's what he's saying. It's severe. A severe state of mind. It literally robs of sleep. It's something that will take a person and push them closer, if you will, to old age in their life. It will rob you of years physically because it takes... A toll. Isn't that interesting? It's not just the physical aspects of life that wear us out. I'm an example of that. But the psychological aspects, the emotional aspects, the difficulties between our ears that rob us of sleep, that cause our heart rate to increase and lower our immune system. These are, these are uh, physical facts. You know, Psalms talks about you know, dealing with grief and so forth. To an extent that your body is just hurting, it's almost wasting away. This is not normal for us. How do we get out of this? It has to be something more involved, perhaps, than just hearing the admonition of, well, don't worry. Well, okay. Well, how do we replace all those things? We'll look at that. We'll look at that. Anxiety is crippling. And it cripples its victims with this overwhelming, uh, what do you want to call it, cloud, if you will, of dread that seems to encircle us and come around us. When you look at it like that, you can see very clearly that that is antithetical to the fullness of God's Spirit, is it not? Worry often drives us to our knees, needs. Things that come into our life that push us down on our knees and push us closer to the Word of God and ultimately to God. We understand that. But we can let that get out of hand. We can let that serve to dominate us and it's not good. The writer here says that the whole grammatical form implies that the disciples or those who were listening there, all of them, they were already worrying as I said. The language here is clear that that's what they were doing, and they're ref- they're referred to later as those who have little faith. They were not operating in faith. They were not focusing upon the presence of Christ. For heaven's sakes, the promises of Christ. They weren't doing that. And when he uses the word life here, that word, suke, that the use of it refers to soul, that we often see, it's the center of the human emotions, it's the the inner person as we understand it. But here specifically it refers to physical life. That's what he's talking about, your physical life. And he gives examples here. He talks about the things that we eat and the things that we drink and the things that we put on. Now again, we talk about the differences in our societies and we look back on their society. These, These were three fairly big issues. As we talked about the food and how that had to happen, there weren't a lot of people, unless you were just in that whatever, I don't know, less than one percent probably, or better, that just, you know, could go to the store and buy something or they had something waiting on them. The super rich, you know, government people or religious people during the day that Christ taught, talking about the religious hierarchy with the Jews and so forth. Those people might be able to go out and buy a meal a couple times a day, but that wasn't the normal thing. You prepared it, you processed it from the ground up. You grew it and cleaned it and pulled its feathers or whatever and cooked it. And that's what you did. Or drinking. Water was a huge, huge issue during those days. And people knew that they had to have it. We talked in a previous lesson about the importance of clothing and even that their law would not allow a person who had to give up their cloak, their outer garment, which covered and protected them in bad weather... If they gave that up as a surety or something as a down payment, you may remember this, the law in that day would not allow that debtor to keep that overnight. They had to return it to that person. This is the kind of society that they live in. So they had some real real issues. They really did. And some of these, the scriptures here as we continue on, they're in a particular rabbinic style. It's called Qual Walmer. I think I pronounced that right. And all it is, it's just this thing you see and you often recognize in Scripture where they're talking about going from the greater to the lesser. You know, Christ will say, well, if this will happen, this is a greater thing. If this happens, then then certainly the lesser would happen. That was a particular way of teaching and preaching during that day. And we see this throughout the Scriptures. Christ continues His discourse in these verses that follow from here. And He's going to utilize some redundancy. Now we've learned that every time we see Christ doing this, if He's doing it just with a few words in the front of His commentary where He says, verily, verily, or whatever, He's making a point. And here, He goes over things a couple of times here. And it's almost, it's almost like, again, He's dealing with people who are already worried. Those are the people He's dealing with. And it's like He's trying to, to shake them free. And He's trying to appeal to them about what God has provided he comes at us with a real uh, practical sense, really, saying, why, "Why would you do this knowing and understanding what God has promised and what God has provided?" Now you may think that's basic, but that is the very thing that we forget when we fall into worry, when we fall into these anxieties and these difficulties that want to plague us. We've moved away from that. We fail to look at that. Particularly, quarrels in the book that I'm studying here on the Sermon on the Mount again, he just simply says that, he says Christ is doing this because quite frankly, he adds his own practicality. He says anxiety dies hard because it's real. We experience it. We know what's happening within our lives and, and we sometimes we just, we can look ahead and and see with some clarity, but not much, we don't know what's going to happen. And we're discouraged, strongly discouraged from worrying about it. It's not that we're not supposed to be responsible, that we're not supposed to, to lay up and to save and to do all those things and to make plans. We are to do that. Yeah, I used to hear a preacher would talk to us in my former church about it. He said there are a lot of those who are aiming at nothing and they're hitting it with accuracy. <laughs> But you have to do that. You have to plan. It's not talking about the things of normal responsibility that demonstrate that's us allowing us to demonstrate our love and thankfulness to God for what He has done by taking care of what He's provided and looking ahead with it. First Timothy four six through eight. Listen, it says, "But godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment." we have brought nothing into the world so we cannot take anything out of it either. Now that kind of helps us get our feet on the ground, does it not? That tells us right there whom we are responsible to for all that we have. Verse 8 says, If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. That is what the Lord has promised us, right? To meet our needs. Not our wants. Not our, our uh, you know, recreational desires. That's not what he's talking about. He doesn't say anything, uh, anything in his word about allowing us to vacation like someone else vacations. He, he doesn't do that. That's not what he's talking about. And it begs a question this morning, I think. If we can say in our life, well, you know, I've got a roof over my head. I've got food to eat. I've got a little gas in my car. God's taking care of me. i got some health and so forth. Is that enough for us to get contentment and direction and literal joy out of our life? Is it? I'm going to ask you this morning. Could you go with that? Could you? It ought to be. Thank you, brother. It frees us, and I want you to see this, this link. Pulling away from this materialism, these expectations frees us to lay up these treasures in heaven that we've talked about. That's what it does. Make sure, the Bible would say, that you don't let riches dominate your life. Riches are deceptive, they can be taken away. And when they are given, praise God. But rest assured, when He gives them, you're really responsible. We are really responsible. That's everybody in this room. We're responsible for how we use that. We will give an account of how we use the blessings of the Lord, whether they're material, whether it has to do with our gifts and our talents and so forth, the time that we might have that's above and beyond someone else's time for whatever. You will, I will, we will give an account. That accounting is not just about whether we believe the Lord or not on that day. The Bible's clear. It's about what you did in your life, how you lived your life, what was important to you. And that's why it remains true that you can see a person's checkbook and determine what's important to them for the most part. That's what He wants us to do. So 1 Timothy reminds us, Paul reminds Timothy there who's ministering to people that look, talk to these people about this. Keep keep them on track with this because it's just another way that evil slips into a person's life, gets their thinking off base, and they wind up in a difficult position. Philippians 4.11 where he says not that I speak from want, Paul, he says for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. Can you say that today? And what does that mean? It means that there is that level of spiritual joy within us even during difficult times. Is that your experience this morning? Is it? Sometimes I think folks are tempted to say, perhaps even when there's teaching or preaching going on, people say, well, you just don't know what I'm going through. You just don't know. Well, I can assure you that I do know. Okay, I've lived, lived long enough to know. <laughs> And that the people around us know that we're not unique. We're not unique in the difficulties of life, the things that come upon us. And we have the fellowship of Christ. We have the fellowship of the local church, a church that loves the Lord and highly prizes the Word of God. We have that. We have the Word of God. What we don't have is an excuse. We really don't for trusting or not trusting God in light of what He has provided for us and promised for us. So, the greatness of God, His love for us, who He is, makes worry absolutely unnecessary in our life. It makes it unnecessary. Verse 26 says, Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap, nor gather in the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more worthy than they are? And of course, the grammatical form here implies, if you will, in the original language, it implies an affirmative answer. The answer is, well, yeah. Again, practical, common sense here being demonstrated by Christ. You look around. You know God. You know He's the Creator. You see what He's done. You see how He can make it happen. We like to say nowadays, He can provide a way. And I like that. I like the times in my life I can look back and see the hand of God providing a way when I didn't think there was a way. In fact, I was pretty much faithless to be all honest about it. My faith might have been like, Indeed, it was lacking but God provided and in His grace He put me on my face and made me ashamed of not trusting Him and His promises in my life. Why would He not take care of me if if, if I'm His child? Why would He not? How could He not? It doesn't happen. If it is happening, I'm going to say it plainly. What could it be? Let me, let me ask you. I, I don't even want to go there. You might not like me after that. What could it be? If we have prayed, we can't see the end, it seems so difficult, what are the possible answers to that? In light of all that God promises, what are the possible answers to that? Anybody? Okay, our, our expectations are off-center. Okay, true enough. We don't need what we think we need. What else? Somebody go ahead and get the big one out of the way. Okay? There you go. Right out of the Word. Thank you. What else? What else? Well, I'm thinking sin. Okay. That, that's the big one. We don't want to say that. We come to God and we say, Look, is my communication with you being hindered because I'm harboring some kind of sin? Is it? That has to be asked. Because He would want to get your attention about that first and foremost. First and foremost, Isaiah says, it is our sins that have separated us from God. Scriptures talk about broken fellowship. David cries out in that regard time and time again because it gets in the way. It gets in the way. God is going to take... Care of us. He's going to take care of us. The birds, they don't plant, they don't harvest, they don't store up. But he says God feeds them. Psalm 104 talks about that, 104, 27 through 28. They all wait, they all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them, they gather it up, you open your hand, they are satisfied with good. And he's just talking about the animal kingdom and God's Providence. This is nothing new. This is the nature and character of God. Luke, when he's talking about this in the parallel verses, he calls them ravens and that's really the specific um, connotation here. He's talking about the ravens. And you, hear, you see these uh, ravens mentioned many, many times in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament in Psalms and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So, when Luke mentions it, he's drawing back from people who know and understand the Scripture these things that deal with these raven birds and so forth. Just to let you know that. This is what the people were thinking about as Christ spoke these words. We're simply worth more than that. Talking again about this greater to the lesser again. But these passages point to a special... Relationship that we have with the Lord because He is our provider. He's our provider. Matthew chapter 7, we'll get there soon, but I want to go ahead and look briefly at 9 through 11 because He says this. This is a recurring thing. We talked about redundancy. Now we're up into chapter 7, we'll see. He says, What man among you, if His Son ask Him for bread, will give Him a stone? Or if He ask Him for a fish, will give Him a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, to our children, how much more will your Father in Heaven give good things to those who ask of Him? You see it again. We need to rejoice in God's promises. We rejoice in His provision. Even when it appears that we're in want. We're in want for a particular purpose. If for no other reason to turn our attention to Him and be reminded once again that we're not like that guy who says, wow, look, I've had a bumper crop. I'm just going to have to build new barns and take in everything else and then I can sit back and relax and take ease. God forbid. It's necessary for us to constantly stay reminded and aware of the fact that we're dependent upon our Heavenly Father. For every provision in our life. Now, that alone would drive us to a level of thankfulness. It's absolutely necessary as we serve our God. It's necessary. So, I share that with you from Matthew. Now, here, let's take a look just a moment. Look at this fact. Man lost his assurance of God's provision as a result of the fall. You go back and you look at the state of, of Mankind at that point and sin entered the world. And things changed, did they not? Things got harder. By the sweat of your brow, now things get processed. And then later, of course, the Jews forfeited their blessings by forsaking the Mosaic Covenant. They did that. Go read Deuteronomy 28. But that leads up to what Christ has promised. This new covenant which has to do with His provision, which has to do once again with Him reaching down and providing, making changes. But in this case, in a much more spiritual way. Not just the physical aspects of life. We refer to it as the New Covenant. And the writers that I've studied here in commentary, they say that this is really where Jesus is going. This is what He's pointing to that amongst this, uh, as part of this new covenant, this is evidence. Christ being there present with them and certainly the, the uh, ultimate sacrifice that's looming for Him, why He's here to pay that sin debt. He's bringing all this together and getting them to understand that look, the new covenant is upon you. God is going to do a work. He's going to change your hearts. He's going to provide in that respect as well. And it's a good place for us to turn our attentions anyway because that's what we should be thinking about. We should be thinking more about our spiritual awkwardness, our spiritual necessity, our spiritual poverty than these other things. And we must first look at what God has provided here in this new covenant. Ezekiel 36-27 says, I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. But look at the nature of this. This is what God is going to do. In our own salvation, we come to Christ. We come to the knowledge of God, which of course involves our own need for a Savior. We do that without a doubt because He first reaches down for us. That's what happens. This is what He's done. This is the ultimate provision for us. That's why when we get to it, and I'll go ahead and quote it, but when we get to Matthew 6.33, right before the end of this passage, He says, I won't deal with it now, but I'll mention it. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then, these things that we've been talking about up front, all of these things He says will be added to you. So we look at first things first here. As we look at this broader issue about our needs and so forth. God has not changed. His heart has not changed. And I couldn't help but look at His heart what He's done in demonstration to Israel and what He would do. Well, I thought I had it marked. Oh, my uh, Bible fell off my car out there and it was blowing around. But I'm going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 30 as I turn to it here. Deuteronomy. Is that in the Old or New Testament? Deuteronomy chapter 30. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 because this shows the heart of God for His people Israel. And you may say, well, what does it have to do with now? Because Moses is talking here about something that's going to happen in the future. He understood. He knew in some manner that Israel was going to go through a really difficult time. And of course, he's, he's talking about the time when they were enslaved. But listen, he says, "...so it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind, you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul. According to all that I have commanded you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity, and have compassion on you, and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you're out if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there He will bring you back. Just look at all these wonderful promises. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed. and You shall possess it. And He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, so that you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecute you. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all His commandments which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body, and in the offspring of your cattle, and in the produce of your ground, For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as He rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes, which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Now that is the heart of God toward His children. Granted, in context, He's talking about Israel. He has not changed, what He has provided for His church will come to pass. He cannot lie, the Bible says. But we see His heart here. We see His heart demonstrated to those, and did you pick up on the key words? Those who obey Him. Those who know His commandments. He reaches down. He changes the hearts. So in your prayers, when you hit your knees and you're praying to God and you're thanking Him for what you do have, I would encourage you to thank Him for this first and foremost. And I guarantee you that the other things in life which He's already promised to provide will become a little clearer and maybe even a little less important as we look at who He is.